so you can keep your oh I need to turn on my switch uh, you can keep your copy of God's word open to Luke 24 but once again we're going to be jumping around when I pulled into the parking lot I did not get the analogy that we are the light of the world I thought we were the salt of the earth um, maybe maybe well we're prepared we know that well indeed we are the light of the world we are the salt of the earth we're here even more directly to to help one another grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ so that we are salty so that we are brilliant uh, in the midst of this dark world we call ourselves Grace Bible Church. Well, grace, what is grace? It's a rich, it's a robust uh, word and doctrine. And Second Peter brings this to bear for us. To grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory now to the day of eternity. Amen. And he actually brackets his whole letter, the second letter, with this grace and knowledge and glory to Christ. And that, that becomes... That becomes our vision. Our vision is simply the glory of Christ. That's why, that's why we were created. It's why we've been assembled together to exalt Christ and to see that others from the nations would gather around and exalt Christ. To him be glory. Till he comes again. And by the way, today is, is the last Sunday of the church calendar. It's known as Christ the King Sunday. The colors are gold and white. Hence, you saw gold on the screen uh, during the, the singing uh, of the scriptures and the singing of praise. And next Lord's Day will be the first Sunday of Advent. And even as we anticipate that celebration of Christmas and the first coming of Jesus, now we've rounded out the year and we are expecting the second coming. Amen. We, we're here to exalt Christ to extend his grace and expect his return. A people of expectancy. Well, I, I must move forward. We've been looking at um, the scriptures, the Bible. The Bible is the means by which we know Christ and grow in his grace. This is where God has revealed his purpose, his plan, his way for his people. This is where we get these pictures of Jesus, of Christ. The incarnate word, the living word in the written word. Now, our, our goal is to become more like Jesus. Now, we will not ever become deity as he is the eternal son of God. But we are to become more and more like his character. To be holy. Godly. How do we do that? The Word. The Word of God breathed into us the very breath of life. The Word of God breathes new life into us. We're shaped and formed by the Word of God. We're made holy. The word, word is sanctify. Or uh, saints. You all, you all who belong to Jesus Christ, you all are trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior you're a saint, a sanctified one, a holy one. That's what the word means. How do we become that increasingly from one degree of glory to the next? 
by the word of God. Jesus prays for you in John 17, verse 7. He says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The word is what makes you holy. Ephesians 5.22, Paul picks up on the same concept. He talks about uh, marriage, and he can't help but, but understand the reality behind human marriage is, is the true marriage, Christ and his bride, the church. And Christ sanctifies his bride by the washing of water with the word. We come, we come as the bride of Christ, and the wedding hasn't quite yet happened. We're waiting for the consummation, the end of all things, the second coming, the second advent that we just amened about. We're longing for that consummation. We're longing for that kind of intimate knowledge when it's all completed. Until then, we're still getting ready. Ephesians 5 describes the bride as spotted, wrinkled, blemish. But the word takes out the wrinkles. It's the best wrinkle remover. The word takes out the blemishes. The word purifies. The word removes the spots. And we come together and we, you, you, you know me, you know I'm not perfect. We're not perfect, but we are saints. And we're in process of becoming more like our Savior, Jesus. It's the word that does the work. And the work is the word. We're to be people of the book. And the more we love Jesus, the more we love his revelation, the more we love the written word of God. It's kind of a barometer. You can check yourself. To what degree are you enthralled with God's word? And that's a measure of some capacity to your love of Jesus, your knowledge of Jesus. This word know Christ is not simply a cognitive knowing. It's the kind of knowing that's very intimate. It's how a man and a woman know one another, this kind of intimacy that a union, a relationship, that's what it is to know Jesus. And that relationship grows. It's nurtured through communication, through word. And he breathes upon us closely. Well, you could, we could spend another series on what in the world does holiness look like? What does sanctification look like? What does the character of Jesus look like? And there's any number of virtue lists throughout the New Testament. In fact, the ones we've alluded to already in Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, that we're the salt of the earth and, the, and that we're the light of the world. Just before that, the, the eight Beatitudes. Blessed are those that mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness and so forth. Virtueless all over. But within Peter, Second Peter, just as he bookends his letter with grace and peace, uh, grace and knowledge of Jesus and to his glory, he then enters into a, a, a paragraph in chapter 1 about union with Christ and the kind of virtues that that come forth from someone who is united with Christ. You may want to mark that as something to check uh, later this afternoon or this evening. Holiness. The Word of God is God-breathed. 
2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God, inspired. That's where we get the word inspired. It is God's very word. It is his character. It is his nature. And just as he is perfect, so his word is perfect. Just as he can be without error, his word is without error. He cannot fail, his word cannot fail. You can never exalt or elevate the word of God too high. Not only is it God-breathed, but it's spirit-taught, spirit-enlightened. It's illumination. We, we come to understand spiritual truths as we're taught by the Spirit interpreting spiritual truths, 1 Corinthians 2.13. Those of us who have been born again by the Spirit are able to, to come to the Scriptures and get a measure of clarity, a measure of understanding. Do we understand it all at one time? No. It'd be like a fire hose if we got grasp it all at one time. And God is gracious. God is gentle. God is patient. And he knows where each and every one of us is in our capacities. And he gently leads us into these green pastures and beside the still waters. And the Holy Spirit brings spiritual truth as we dwell in the Word. Now the third element is interpretation. You love it? Inspiration, illumination, interpretation. God-breathed, spirit-taught, Christ-centered. This is all Trinitarian. And that's distinctive as a Christian, as believers. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Marx is different than any other religious group, any other spiritual element in the world. The Father sends the Son who sends the Spirit. And we become a living body of believers. Christ-centered interpretation. We already read Luke chapter 24. What a marvelous account. We typically save that one for uh, Easter and Resurrection Sunday, don't we? We're, we're looking at this one for just launching into Advent. We're getting there. But look at John 5, verse 39. It dovetails along with this. You search the scriptures. Jesus talking to the Bible teachers of the day. You search the scriptures because in, you think that in them you have eternal life. And Jesus is assuming that that's true. He knows it's true, but he says, it's they, the scriptures, that bear witness about me. Wow. The scriptures are about the Christ, Jesus. And the Bible teachers missed it. The Bible teachers of the day missed it. Now, that ought to be encouragement for the rest of us. You don't need to be the Pharisee, the Sadducee, the Bible teacher, the scholar, the scribe to see Jesus revealed in the Scriptures. What you need is to be born again by the Spirit of God who's teaching and witnessing within you of Christ. We all have the same tools and resources in that capacity. Christ-centeredness. christ Centeredness. Now, I know you, you could do you could Google search Christ centered and you're gonna find strange things as well as some very, very good things. The the trouble with any of these terms is someone's already used them and already borrowed them and already misused them. I'm I don't know what better to use than Christ centered. Christ exalted, Christ fulfilled, just doesn't roll quite as nicely, but Christ culminated. 
Now, let's get a little technical. We've been doing this with the others, with inspiration and, and with illumination. These terms, these terms are a little more even geeky. Hermeneutics. Let's say that one out loud together. Hermeneutics. Oh, you're good. Herman who? Hermeneutics. Okay. It's a Greek word. It's a New Testament Greek word. And it's actually used here in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. And there it says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, that is Jesus, interpreted to them the scriptures, the things concerning him. Interpreted. That's this word hermeneutics. So what is hermeneutics about? Interpreting the Bible. Understanding the Bible. Uh, exegesis. You heard that one? Exegesis? Just a handful. I've said it. So you've, you can all just say you heard it, right? In fact, we just said it now. No. Exegesis. It it's, comes from this New Testament Greek word as well, to lead out, to seek out, to track down. It's similar to explain or interpret, but it is to draw out of the text of Scripture. It is to seek out and bring out the truth that is in the Scripture. Now, this word is also used in the New Testament. It's actually used of Jesus who exegetes the Father. Wow. So you go to um, John chapter 1, verse 18. This is the big Advent passage. This is big Christmas passage, John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. And then it goes down in verse 18 to say, No one's ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. He has exegeted Him. The Son, the eternal Son, who's at the right hand of the Father, has exegeted, has made known to us who the God the Father is. When we come to the Scriptures, we go through this process of drawing out, leading out from the text who God is. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Inductive. Inductive Bible study. Not many more than exegete. It's good we're doing this, this, this series. Inductive. It is to, to, again, draw out of it. Basically means the same thing as exegete. To go from the specifics of the text to the general principle. To take from what's in the Bible and then figure out what God desires, what God wants. We tend to do it the other way around, don't we? We kind of have an idea what we want or what we should do, and then we go into the Bible and try to find it. That's not the right way. Expository. This one has maybe more to do with the preacher necessarily than, than um, the study part itself. But it comes from that Latin word, and you might see within the root word, expose. It is to bring forth, to exhibit, to present what is in the text. You'll hear these terms, and now you know what these are about. But let's get back to interpretation, should we? Christ-centered interpretation. A couple more passages that really help us see that the Scriptures repeatedly reveal in themselves it's about the Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1. The prophets prophesied about the grace that was searched and in, that was to be yours. 
And they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ was to be indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Now, of course, he's speaking to the New Testament church. Peter's writing specifically to a group of people, believers. But by extension, we are that New Testament church. And the prophets of the Old Testament, we'll sing about them next Sunday, first Sunday of Advent. The prophets of old were looking into the scriptures, anticipating when is the Christ going to come? Who is the Christ going to be? And they realized in studying the scriptures, in their vantage point, it was yet to be. It's for us. But here the point is, the scriptures testify of Jesus. Similarly, uh, um, history, the history parts. And we've just been through uh, the book of Exodus together. And we, we attempted to bridge that in seeing how does that situation lead to the coming of Messiah? How does it prepare the way of Messiah? 1 Corinthians 10. Did I put that one up there? 1 Corinthians 10, 9 to 11? Yeah, okay. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did. He's talking about Israel in the wilderness. They were destroyed by serpents. We shouldn't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyers, the death angel. These things happened to them as an example and they were written down for our instruction to whom the end of the ages has come. Those historical things, they're not just historical data. They're examples as to how not to live or how to live. All the scriptures, somehow, one way or another, are anticipating or preparing the way for the coming of Jesus. Now, it doesn't mean that every single verse you're going to find Jesus. It's probably really dangerous to think about the, the red cord that Rahab drops down from this wall of Jericho and somehow think it's the blood of Jesus. No, 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 no. Let's not do that kind of trickery. Now, at the same time, there is picture. There is illusion. But the history is there for us to learn how it leads to Jesus. And there's a history. So uh, a simple version of redemptive history, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. The four movements. But we could be just a little more precise with this. It's still very very survey-like. Creation, fall, the old covenant, the first advent, which we're anticipating in Christmas time, the coming of the Son, the new covenant, the establishment of Christ uh, with the New Testament church, and then his second advent, the second coming, when he comes again. Somehow, one way or another, wherever we are in the scriptures, we're in this flow. Wherever we're reading the Bible, we're in some part of this redemptive history. Creation, fall, old covenant, first advent, new covenant, second advent. 
This is, and you can maybe see a little bit how this relates to the gospel message of Christ. Yeah. Redemptive history is just a great survey way to know. But in doing all this, getting to Christ, we must remember that the Son is related to the Father and the Spirit. Being Christ-centered necessitates that we're still triune. We're still looking for Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And how God is manifest, revealed in the whole of the Scriptures as Creator, as Redeemer, as Sustainer, and Recreator. Why, again, why? Why is it so important that we stick with Christ? Why is it so important in our Bible reading that we get to Christ? Well, just think of, think of your name. No, not that name. You're a Christian. Christian. C-H-R-I-S-T. Christ. A Christian. Oh, no, there's a lot of other Ians. There's Herodians, Augustinians, all kinds. It's, it, it, well, we were first called Christians in Antioch. Acts records that. And it was a mockery. It was a diminutive. Oh, you're one of those little Christs. Oh, yeah, there you are, Toddy. Little Christy. Christian. It could become a little bit more formal for if you're an Augustinian, you're, you're one who follows Caesar. If you're a Herodian, you're one who follows Herod. If you're a Christian, you're one who follows Christ. It used to be in previous decades of our life existence here in the West that to be a Christian was the normal thing that had some great benefits, had some drawbacks too. You know, if everybody thinks they're Christian, then who is? We've become a social Christian. But increasingly today, it's not popular to be the Christian. Now we are the enemy, I mean overtly the enemy. And as you are branded and labeled Christian, is there anything in your life at all that would manifest the character of Christ? That you might even get accused by the way you live, the way you think, the way you act, that you're one who follows Christ. In reading the scriptures, we want our identity to be more and more overt, manifest, that I follow Christ. This was Paul's charge and Paul's purpose in his ministry over and again in his letters. He says this is the purpose. Let's look at just, just a handful of them um, in his epistles. Where did I do that? Oh, Col Colossians chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. That we would present everyone mature in Christ. Everyone, every believer, mature in Christ. And he goes on, really kind of 
the paragraphs running together in Colossians 2. His purpose is to teach all the riches, to reach, he's praying that we would reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God, his mystery, which is Christ. Assurance and knowledge, understanding of God's mystery, it is Christ. Galatians 4.19, he says, I am in the travails of childbirth until Christ be formed in you. Another, another term that often gets misused and misrepresented is spiritual formation. Well, here's a verse that is kind of a good proof for the concept, but even more so we might say Christ formation. To be conformed to the image of Christ. Ephesians 4, 11 to 14, uh, verse 14 in particular, I think it is, that we would come to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Oh. I, I know I'm not, I'm not that old, but I'm old enough. I'm in the mid-50s. Actually, I'm over the mid-50s. And I thought by now, you know, you'd have the fullness and the, well, I have the fullness. You'd have the stature of Christ. I, oh. Maturity of Christ. Do you long to attain the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ? That's the purpose of the word. We become more like him. If we leave Christ out, let me, let me say this. If, if we leave Christ out of your, our Bible reading, what do we have? Well, a couple of popular dudes in the last decade or two would say, well, at least, at least you still have your best life now. One of, our, one of our infamous pastor dudes from about a mile away years ago said, well, even, even, if, even if the real father of Jesus wasn't God, but it was Norman or something like that. No offense to Normans. <laughs> at, at least Christianity is still the best way. Like, what? Without Christ, the eternal Son of God, without Him in the reading of your Bible, what are you left with? You're left with a handbook for life. You're left with a manual. You're left with a map, but no compass. And you're going to get lost. Now, without Christ, in our reading of the Bible, all we're going to become are Pharisees, not Christians. We, we need Christ, and we need to see how Christ is the fulfillment of the Scriptures. Otherwise, we're just a bunch of moralists, or like Christian Smith says, moralistic therapeutic deism. God is just out there to have a better life and, and for me to get, to get better. 
in every way, economically, socially, physically. No, there's, there's way more to the Christian life, and, and there's Christ, and that's the hope. And when we do struggle and suffer and things don't come together like we had hoped they would for our bodies or for our careers or whatever relationships, Christ is enough. Christ is more than enough. And we watch one another endure. We watch one another through the hard things and through the sufferings being shaped and formed by the Word of God and conformed to the image of Christ. No, we need the Scriptures. If we don't get to Christ in our reading of the Bible, then we may as well be any other religion. We're no better than the Old Testament Jew or Israeli of today. I know, I kind of went anachronistic there. But the Jew and the Israeli today are living as if Christ never came. And you see the mess. That is because they don't hold to Christ. They're not going to until Jesus comes back. So no matter what we do politically, no matter what we do economically, it will fail. Christ is the only one who will put it back together and make it right. And Jesus said that they, they would not turn until they said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In fact, Matthew, oh, I digress again. The, the, the temple narrative in Matthew is bookended by those, that verse. He quotes it twice to get the emphasis on it. Okay, without Christ, we may as well just be good religious people of any kind. There's no life, only law. We read the Bible because we want to know Jesus deeply, intimately, personally. Let me go through just very quickly a couple of basic reading principles. The first one is progressive revelation. You're like, whoa, he used the progressive word. I know. There's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Begins in the garden at Genesis and ends in the garden at Revelation 22. And it moves progressively. God, God is revealing himself moment by moment from truth to more truth, from lesser to greater, from provisional to permanent, from inadequate to perfect. Not that there's anything wrong with the Old Testament and the early days of Abraham's faith. In fact, it says unless you have faith like Abraham, you, you can't enter into the kingdom. But what does all that mean? We, become, we, we see more clearly as God reveals himself over the millennia. 
thousands of years and the continuity of the story, amazing. Multiple human authors, multiple kinds of literature, and God slowly reveals himself. And that's similar to how he's working in your life and in your heart. Little by little, I grasp more, I see more clearly. God's plan and God's purpose. Progressive revelation. Original authorial intent. You've you got to know what Luke meant when he used these words in Luke 24. You, you need to know what Isaiah meant when he writes Isaiah chapter 7 or 6. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. You, you need to know what he meant and how the people of his day would have read it and heard it. The analogy of faith, or sometimes called the rule of faith. This one always trips me up because I, we're about the Bible, right? This rule is about the Bible, but it, we're talking about the analogy of faith, the analogy of the rule of faith. Well, Scripture interprets Scripture. So when you get to one of those difficult places, I don't know, what's your favorite difficult place? Proverbs? Oh, that's a good one. Like, train up a child in the way he will go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Like, is that a promise? Careful, Sammy. <laughs> or is it an observation? And train up a child, is it even talking about spiritual things, or is it talking about vocation, occupation. Well, there might be a way we can go to some other verse and, and figure out what it means. Oh, you know what the very next verse is? You got picked a good one for me. You know what the very next, I think it's the very next verse after train up a child and the way it will go. The borrower is servant to the lender. Wow, does that one get misused in economics and finance? But you've got to be honest and interpret both verses the same way, buddy. Whoever that buddy is. <laughs> All right, we don't need to get ourselves confused, sorry. But when you come to the unclear portions, go to the clear portions. John 3.16 <laughs> God loved the world in such a way that He gave. He gave his only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in Him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life. Now, that's pretty clear. That one might help us understand some other verses. The analogy of faith, the rule of faith. Um, now we're going to... Augustine, Augustine, the old preacher from the 400s, yeah, just 400s, um, he, was, he was an African theologian and he said, the, the new is in the old concealed and the old is in the new revealed. That's pretty helpful. Scripture interprets Scripture. Both directions. From the old to the new and the new to the old. Historical grammatical. You ready for that one? Historical grammatical. History. Grammar. 
As soon as we hit grammar and history, like, we're, we're napping. <laughs> we, I had social studies after lunch in my senior year of high school. I had been up at four to milk the cows. I was going back to milk the cows soon as school bell got out and we drove back to the farm. By the time we got done milking cows and I stank like they did and I tried to clean up homework and I would nap during social studies. History, grammar. Well, you need to know who the author is. Where was it written? To whom is he writing? And what's the culture like? What was it like to live in those days? What does it mean to be salt of the earth? Grammatical forms, word definitions, word meanings, the order of the words. In English, we pretty much go subject, verb, Predicate, thanks, Sammy. You see, I slept through that part, too. We pretty much have a straightforward reading, but Hebrew and Greek both, it's more like Yoda. Star Wars, Yoda, you know, you know how he, he'll, he'll move the verb first and then the noun, and I won't try. The word order, if you put the word first, it can be of emphasis and highlight what's going on. You know me, I show you these chiastic structures, these patterns, these bookends within the scripture. They can help us understand the emphasis that the passage is supposed to draw for us. Genre, uh-oh, let's do the next one, genre. We've got law, history, wisdom, prophecy, gospels, epistles, apocalyptic. That's like the book of Revelation. Within this, we've got narrative, we've got biography, poetry, songs, instruction, and imperatives, commands. All of this, like, how do we interpret all these? How do we read all these? Just be aware of where you are in the scriptures. Literary context. Words usually have more than one meaning. Have you noticed that? Take the word flesh. Now, if you're a Pauline scholar, like flesh is your enemy. We want to kill the flesh. We want to cut off the flesh. But John, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Sometimes flesh is like good, incarnate, created in the image of God. And sometimes flesh is that which resists God. Context. The verse before it, the verse after it, the paragraph that it's in, the, 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 the narrative story that it's in, the pericope, the, 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 the book itself, the Gospel of Luke, and Luke, Luke and Acts together, Luke, Luke wrote both the gospel and the account of Acts. And Luke, Luke actually wrote most of the New Testament. 
Just those two together are bigger than any other author combined in the New Testament. And then you look at the New Testament. And then you look at the old and the new together. Context. Context. Now some of you are saying, well, I need help when I'm reading. Me too. There's some oldies but goodies. Some of these, well, we don't want to jump into a commentary right away. We, we want to ask God to lead us. We ask God for His Holy Spirit to teach us, to guide us in truth and in His Word. And we need to be patient and read and reread and reread what we read. read. Once, once, it's not going to sink in. What is God saying in His Word to you? But then you get stumped or you're on the spot. You know, there are times when I, when I visit a small group and I'm supposed to, you know, know everything. I don't. And I'm so grateful for a commentary that I can carry everywhere. <laughs> and what a blessing that it's only this big now. Who, you've got those study Bibles, right? You can weight lift with the study Bibles, right? <laughs> what a blessing that we can have resources right at our fingertips. Now, I'm not talking about these multi-volume sets of commentaries. There's 66 books of the Bible. We have a commentary for each one. But, but there's some whole Bible commentaries, and, and here's some trustworthy oldie but goodies. Matthew Henry. Very easy to get in almost any form you want, on almost any language. Matthew Poole. These two, Matthew Henry and Matthew Poole, Charles Spurgeon said, if I couldn't have anybody else, I would have Matthew Henry. And if, if the, the second best from Matthew Henry is Matthew Poole. Well, if it's good for Spurgeon. Jameson Fawcett Brown. That's kind of how it's been known. Jameson Fawcett Brown, commentary on the whole Bible. John Gill. John Gill is one of those Puritan Baptist kind of guys. And his is actually, I think, six volumes. Hard to carry. Unless it's here. Like, blessing. Um, then there's some of the newer ones. And these become even more difficult, uh, really, to sort through and sort out. But you can get the Expositor's Bible Commentary abridged in two volumes. One for the Old Testament, one for the New Testament. Oh, yeah, you can get the massive set, but they bridged it into two volumes, one of the old, one of the new. Now, some of you are more of a Dallas seminary persuasion. You could get the Bible Knowledge Commentary by Walvert and Zuck. Same setup. Volume 1, Old Testament. Volume 2, New Testament. The one I go to, the one I use on my tablet and when I'm in a pickle um, at coffee or something, you know, sitting there in the West office and something comes up, and I pull it out on my phone, is the new Bible commentary, D.A. Carson. 
What a, what a treasure. What a, what a wonderful tool. And um, yeah, if I buy the book, it's probably like that, but it fits right on here. It fits on my phone. And, and you're going to get a whole lot more from a one-volume commentary like this than any study Bible you could ever get. There's good, good, good study Bibles, no doubt about it. But you'll get more from a one-volume commentary and try to find one that's going more verse by verse rather than chapter by chapter. John MacArthur has a good one-volume commentary and stuff by Leland Riken. He's a literary professor uh, at Wheaton and, and he's just got so helpful materials on He's got a handbook of the Bible. He's got a handbook of literary forms. And there's no end. But these are some helpful ones. And if I encourage you to read the Bible. There's still some printed out forms at the Info Center. Uh, if you would like to start reading through the Bible. Again, you can find helpful apps on your device. That will help guide you through Bible reading and Bible study. This, this series has been a little bit more on the, on the teaching level uh, and some basic foundational things. But I want, us to catch, I want us to catch a vision for Christ in His Word. Christ in His Word. It's God-breathed. It's Spirit-taught. It's Christ-centered. So, Lord, enable us, I pray, to be people of the book. We thank you that these scriptures are true and sure. Amen.